we are going to take two weeks to introduce our new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And you say, two weeks? And I say, yeah, you should know me by now, right? Like, I take a long time to go through books of the Bible, you know? At this point, there should be no surprise that we're going to take two weeks to introduce the sermon series. Um, and I think you're all starting to get to know me a little bit better Right and how slow I work through books, but thank you for your patience. And honestly, the more that I've poured myself into the contents of the Gospel of Mark over the last number of months um, and allowed its message to pour into me, I'm really overwhelmed with how much um, that there is to see. Um, and then not to see, but then apply. And that's our hope and ambition anytime we preach from this book, that we wouldn't just see beauty, but that we would be changed by it, fundamentally changed by the beauty we see there. And, and I saw a lot of beauty in the Gospel of Mark over the last three or four months has been thinking about this series. So we're going to take two weeks to introduce the book. And this week, I just want to introduce you to the author of the book. Um, obviously, we know it's the Holy Spirit, but John Mark in particular and next week, I want to introduce you to some of the major themes that we will see throughout. So today, we're just going to paint a portrait, a painted portrait of John Mark. And what is the painted portrait of the author of the Gospel of Mark? And what can we take away from our encounter with what we're going to stare at for the next 30 minutes? We want to see who this fellow was and so this is different than our normal sermons. This is a character study. And so we're going to attempt to make some wide-sweeping um, uh, thoughts about John Mark and make a wide-sweeping composite sketch of Mark in a few moments. And the first place that we encounter Mark is in the book of Acts in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 12 specifically. And so we're not going to base just in one text. We're going to look at a lot of text today, but one of them is going to be Acts chapter 12. And this is... One of those stories that when you read it, it really just amazes you. You should be flabbergasted by what you see taking place in Acts chapter 12, and it really highlights the incredible power of prayer. And so on a side note, um, I was thoroughly encouraged uh, to have all 48 time slots filled up um, to cover 24 consecutive hours of prayer for those in our community that have been impacted by abortion or for those that support families impacted by abortion. We put that challenge out there last week. We know that it was Love Life Adoption Week, and we called on the church community to pray and fast for 20 consec 24 consecutive hours on Wednesday. And uh, so I put the charge out there, and we had 30-minute time slots, and we had 48 time slots that need to be filled by um, Sunday afternoon when I got home, I checked. We had 36 of the 48 filled up. I was like, great. And then by Tuesday morning, we had 46 of the 48 filled up. And then we graciously had one staff member take the 3 o'clock time slot. And, uh, and, or 3.30 it might have been. And uh, so we filled up all 48 time slots. And that was, uh, as I met with the representation for Love Life uh, yesterday and talked with her, she said, we've never had any church do that before. And so she referenced us as kind of the tip of the spear to do something like that. So we just praise God that he works powerfully and effectively uh, through the means of God's people praying and crying out to him. And so that just kind of thrilled my pastoral heart to have that happen. But this is the story that we see in Acts chapter 12. It's one of those incredible stories about the power of prayer. And uh, so here's the story in Acts chapter 12. The situation for Peter in Acts chapter 12 is completely bleak. 
Peter is on death row. You can turn there. We're not going to read through all of it, but you'll just kind of see the reference there. He's on death row. Peter is ready to be killed at sunrise. That is, unless God does something miraculously to intervene. And we learned at the beginning of chapter 12 of the book of Acts that Herod had already persecuted a number of people who had belonged to the church, and he had already killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And then we read that Peter was arrested also, and he was guarded by four squads of soldiers, like heavily guarded Peter, imprisoned, and it was nighttime, and dawn was coming, and when dawn came, execution awaited Peter. And we know that Herod was already willing to thrust the sword into somebody because he had already done it. So Peter is on death row, and by the rising of the sun, he's dead. And then we read this in the book, Acts 12.5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And this verse is recorded in the scriptures for us that we never, ever, ever, ever forget to neglect the awesome power of intercessory prayer because this is what we read next. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God on his behalf. In verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out, he's going to kill him. And on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side, and he woke him up, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off of his hands. So the deliverance is coming about. And honestly, it's kind of funny because Peter is pretty confused by all that was taking place. He, he doesn't know what's happening, right? Like, what? And who among us wouldn't be? It's pretty shocking, right? He gets up, he's let out, and eventually he makes his way to a familiar home down the way where the people of God were gathered praying for his release. And he knocks on the gateway, the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda recognizes his voice and doesn't even open up the door. It's interesting because Rhoda, the fact that Rhoda, the servant girl, knew Peter's voice without even seeing his face indicates that she knew him well enough to recognize who he was even without seeing him. And that's a very important detail of the story and we'll get back to it in a moment. And so she goes back to tell the gathered church that were praying for Peter's release that Peter was there without even seeing him. She says, stop praying Peter is here. God answered our prayers. And do you remember what was said to her? Who remembers, right? Oh, it's probably Peter's ghost, right? Like, what? What is that? Like, what kind of faith is that? It's, they said, oh, it must be some sort of, it must be his angel that appeared, right? You were gathered there praying for his release, and then he shows up. The answered prayer is there. You're like, that couldn't be the case. It's met with sarcasm, it's met with sarcasm. Makes me think of Jesus. Oh, ye of little faith, right? So they're gathered there praying for Peter's release, and God answers their prayers, and they greet that answer with sarcasm. Here's a side note. Do you ever see yourself there? 
Have you ever turned a blind eye to an answered prayer? Have you ever been publicly praying for something but privately thinking that what you're praying about was a joke or God will never do this, but to console the person I'm praying with, I'll pray in this manner. Have you ever chalked up an answered prayer to just coincidence? We're not outside of the text here. We're, we're in the text. We're the church gathered praying. So anyway, that's just a side note. And honestly, we're not here to talk about prayer or Peter. We're trying to do a character study on Mark. So why take all the time to tell that story? Here's why. Peter escapes execution. And when he comes to his senses, Luke, who wrote the, the, the book of Acts, says this. When Peter, when he realized this, verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So here's the connecting point. When Peter was released from prison, he's on death row, he's released, he went to a familiar house down the way, and it was the house that John Mark grew up in. And it's a place that he had undoubtedly spent time in before. Why? Because upon arrival, Peter's voice was recognized by a servant girl before his face was even seen. And that tells us that this wasn't Peter's first time there. More than likely, he had been a guest there often. So you got John Mark hanging out at Peter's house. And so we see a strong relational connection between Peter and and the author of the book that we're getting ready to study, John Mark. Now, John Mark wasn't a disciple of Jesus, but he hung out with one. And that tells you something. A disciple who was making another disciple, okay? But John Mark was not a disciple, but he hung out with one. And so where did Mark get his source material from? Well, more than likely, and according to church history, it was Peter himself He had a strong relational connection with the Apostle Peter. And here in a few moments, we're going to see that he also accompanied the Apostle Paul in his first missionary journey. So now, the author of the Gospel of Mark has strong relational connections with two men who combined wrote 25% of the New Testament. So where did Peter get his sources from? Well, apostolic sources. So John Mark had strong apostolic connections with both Peter and Paul. Chapter 12, verse 12, it says this, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So when John Mark first makes his subtle appearance on the landscape of the New Testament, all we know of him is that he's the son of a woman named Mary. That's all we know. We also know that she owns a house big enough to have many gathered in it. So there's a few things that we can safely assume from verse 12 here, from this information. John Mark's dad is more than likely not around and more than likely dead. In the entire New Testament, the only times that children, we see children identified with the moniker son of a mother Instead of a man, that woman was widowed. And so John Mark more than likely experienced the pain of losing his father. There's some deep hurt there. 
And we see this explicitly in Luke chapter 7, verse 12, when Jesus readies himself to raise to life a widow's son. It says this, And as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who, was di- who, who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, widow, because she didn't, her husband had, had died, right? So he was identified as the son of a mother, right? Because she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. We see it also again in Mark chapter 6 verse 3. When the people were wondering who Jesus really was, they said this, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? The last mention of Joseph, the earthly, non-biological father of Jesus, is when they were looking for Jesus, when Jesus had stayed behind the temple in Jerusalem at age 12. And so between the ages of 12 and by the time Jesus began his public ministry at age 30, we know that detail from Luke chapter 3 verse 23, Joseph died. And that's why when Jesus begins his public ministry, he's known as not the son of Joseph, but the son of Mary. He'd experienced the pain of losing a father. And those are the only other two New Testament occurrences where a child is known as the son of a mother and not a father, except for Timothy, but the reason for that is because his dad was Greek. And so from this, it's safe to assume that John Mark's father had passed away. And that's further supported by this. Listen, we see from Peter's writings, the guy that he hung out with a lot, that Peter may have played some sort of father figure role, a stand-in father figure role in in John Mark's life, we read in 1 Peter 5.13, she who is at Babylon, that's an Old Testament reference to the people of God in the New Testament, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Now Peter was not really John Mark's father, but he played the role of father in Peter's life. So from this, we know that Mark was close with Peter, and that just kind of gives us a little bit of shape of this relationship that Mark had, who was absent of a father. And another thing that we can learn and safe to assume from Acts chapter 12, verse 12, this passage is that he probably came from a household that had plenty of money. This was pretty abnormal. Look, it says, when Peter realized this, when he's released from prison and he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. That's abnormal to have many people gathered in one location. Many implies a lot of people able to fit inside a household. So John Mark more than likely was richly resourced and he used those resources for ministry purposes. He lived in a house big enough for a bunch of people to gather in, and that house was more than likely utilized before for ministry purposes. That's why Peter, upon his release right away from prison, went there. He's like, that's where we meet. We meet there, at that place, at that house. And so some commentators speculate that the home of John Mark was kind of the epicenter of this new movement formed around the resurrected Christ. That's where they met. Some speculate that this might have been where Jesus celebrated the Passover meal, turned Lord's Supper with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. And I don't know if we can really know that explicitly from any biblical narrative, but we do see John's house being used for ministry purposes. So John Mark more than likely was richly resourced and he used them for ministry purposes. And the next thing that we can learn is that John Mark had two names. You're like, duh, you just said them, right? Right? Tell me something new. Can we learn anything from this? 
And perhaps we can. John Mark had two names. In first century Palestine, it was common for a man to have two names. A Hebrew name, which was John, by which he was known to his friends and relatives, and then a Greek or a Roman name or a Roman Christian name, Mark. And so the two names, although culturally common in the New Testament, can also indicate that there was a fundamental change in a person. We see that in the lives of both Saul and Simon, who were renamed to Paul and Peter. These people that he had spent a lot of time with, that he had apostolic connections to. So when they became new creations, they were identified with a new name. And that might be the case with John Mark. We don't know. It's speculative. But it's also within the realm of New Testament possibilities. So just from one verse in Acts, where he just subtly makes his appearance, we can discern a lot from just one verse in Acts chapter 12 about John Mark. And then later on in the chapter which I call like the Christmas verse because it's chapter 12, verse 25. It's like December 25th. We learn this. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So what do we get from this? Well, John Mark showed potential for ministry. John Mark showed incredible potential for ministry. They're utilizing his house. He knows Peter. He knows Paul. And now he's getting ready to go on a missionary journey right? So Peter's delivered from prison, and Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch from Jerusalem, and when they did, Mark went with them, is what Luke tells us. So now Mark also had family connections with Barnabas. We read that about in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. We'll get to that later. He's actually cousins with Barnabas, but for now, all we know is that Mark is with the great apostle Paul and his cousin Barnabas at the end of chapter 12 in the book of Acts, And Acts chapter 12 ends, and Acts chapter 13 begins, and as it does, God sets the stage to set up ministers and missionaries to go throughout the then-known world, and John Mark was one of them. Talk about tip of the spear, like he's going out into uncharted territories and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's read part of that narrative, Acts chapter 13, verses 2 through 3. It says this, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, the church doesn't send out missionaries, the Holy Spirit does. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and when they arrived at Salamis, They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So here's John assisting the apostle Paul and his cousin Barnabas, who was the son of encouragement, as they set sail on their first missionary endeavor. Now, we don't know the nature of his assistance, But it is also within the realm of possibility that being a son in a prosperous Jewish Christian family in Jerusalem, and as the cousin of a wealthy landowner, Barnabas, we read about that in Acts chapter 4, that John Mark might have been a big monetary contributor to the trip itself. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that he was brought along with them for assistance. And when you read the next seven verses in that chapter, you will see that they cover a lot of ground that would cost a lot of money. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 13, verse 13, you read this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
well, that's an interesting detail, Luke. Why'd you put that in there? And we don't know why John was brought along to assist, and we don't know why John cut out early. But Luke, the author of Acts, makes sure that we know he did. He bailed. He bailed at some point during the mission after being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So there's no explanation given. We just have to be okay with not knowing why he left. But it was probably for legitimate reasons. You don't just leave something. But because the next time we see John Mark in the scriptures is when Paul and Barnabas were preparing to go out on their second missionary journey and Barnabas wanted to take Mark, but Paul said, no way. That guy bailed. He might have had legitimate reasons, but that guy bailed. Yeah, he had potential, and he squelched it. So look at what it says in Acts chapter 15. They're get, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go out on their second missionary journey, and Barnabas, the cousin of Mark, says, hey, let's get this guy, let's get John Mark again, right? And this is what we read. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. And now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with him or with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not had gone with them through all the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul took Silas, we'll read later on, and they go back to encourage and strengthen the churches. That word translated, sharp disagreement, is the word parexcusmos, provocation. They were provoked against each other. There was a severe argument based on intense difference of opinion. Look at that. But Paul thought best. He didn't know best, but he thought best. They had a difference of opinion that they held very strongly. So there's something to glean here. Sometimes in matters pertaining to ministry, we can have intense differences of opinion and then also be led in different directions, but neither opinion of ministry option is categorically right or wrong. I think this best I think this best. Who's right? Who's wrong? Neither. I think we need to hold all of our ministry endeavors loosely and rely on the collective wisdom of wise, seasoned leadership to help us make ministry decisions. So here we have Barnabas wanting Mark and Paul not wanting Mark. Paul saying it just wouldn't be best to the degree that they go in opposite directions. But here's the thing. The work of God continues on. It actually multiplies because of a difference of opinion. Who's in control? God. So Barnabas takes his cousin Mark with him and they sell away to Cyprus. And then in the verse, verses 40 and 41, it says, But Paul chose Silas 
A new disciple, right? And departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia and strengthening the churches. Verse 39, now get this, verse 39 is the last time we hear of John Mark doing any ministry in the book of Acts. And, and we're not even halfway through the book of Acts, or basically halfway through the book of Acts here. But he just kind of fades off into the distance. And the rest of the entire book is filled with the ministry exploits and efforts of the great apostle Paul. And I don't think that Luke has a bias toward Paul. I think he's indicating to something to us. And he's tipping his hat to Paul's usefulness in ministry while Mark had lost his ministry opportunity. Even though he was going out. But there's a difference here. Something happened in Mark's life that Paul wasn't squared away with. So the one-time ministry assistant to the Apostle Paul and the son of the Apostle Peter just completely fades out of the ministry picture in the book of Acts. He's not to be mentioned of again, while Peter and Paul are highlighted left and right. And so from that, I think we can infer that John Mark lost his potential to do ministry for a time. This once person who showed potential for great ministry usefulness for some reason that we don't know, but based off of a difference of opinion, he just fades off the New Testament landscape. We don't see him doing ministry again. John Mark lost his potential to do ministry for a time. And I know it's a little bit of an argument from silence, and we can't know this for certain, but honestly, silence is all we have. We don't have anything else about John Mark in the book of Acts. And Luke would point it out if there was something to point out. But, praise God, his story isn't over yet. Because he does, John Mark skip across the pages a few times in the New Testament in the writings of the Apostle Paul, of all people. And so to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes this. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Paul tells the Colossians to welcome him. Interesting, because the last time we read of Mark, Paul was telling people to move away from him. (laughs) But now he's telling people to move toward him, welcome him. Let Mark come into your embrace So we start scratching our heads and say, well, maybe a restoration is taking place. The first time we see him skip across the landscape of the New Testament. And then we see it again as he splashes down in the Apostle Paul's writing to Philemon. To Philemon, he says, Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So Paul tells the Colossians, why don't you welcome John Mark among you? And then he announces to Philemon from prison that John Mark is a fellow worker of his. So Paul was prison bound, but Mark was free to go about doing Pauline type ministry because John Mark was a fellow worker of Paul. Like, hmm, it sounds like a restoration isn't taking place, but rather that it has taken place. And finally, this is beautiful to behold. I love this. Because this is where I see myself. 
the final time we hear anything about John Mark, the final time we hear John Mark's name in the scriptures is when Paul is fading out of the New Testament landscape. So John faded out, and now later on in time, Paul is going to fade out because he's on house arrest in Rome, and he writes to Timothy, the young pastor at Ephesus. To him he writes, 2 Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, Timothy, for Demas, in love with this present world. So here's somebody who was with him earlier, who was a fellow worker, but now he's fallen away. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and he'd gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. So Paul seems to be lonely and in need of companionship and also in need of supplies to continue on his ministry until his ministry is completely finally up. And he says to Timothy, hey, can you come soon? Like, I, I need you to come soon. It's almost done. And he says this, Luke alone is with me. And get this, he says, get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why? Purpose? He is very useful to me in ministry. Paul's opinion of Mark's usefulness for ministry had changed. And his opinion is recorded in the inspired words of Scripture that John Mark once used in ministry, who ceased to do ministry, was once again useful for ministry again. Not just useful, but very useful. John Mark was useful for ministry again. And so the finished portrait of John Mark in the scriptures is that he is useful for ministry again. He may be a little bit of a late bloomer, but once bloomed, he might have been more useful than ever. And so here's a few personal questions for your consideration. What I tried to do is tell you everything that the New Testament tells you about the author of the Gospel of Mark. I tried to paint a painted portrait of John Mark in the scriptures so I could hold him up in front of your face and say, do you see yourself there at all? So you need to look at this picture that's painted and ask yourself these questions. Are you young? Are you eager for ministry? John Mark was. Are you ready to serve the Lord with your life? Maybe you're a person of means. Whatever means those might be, maybe you have money, maybe you have a house, maybe you have intellect, maybe you have social or relational skills. Are you willing to utilize them for kingdom purposes? How about this? Have you grown up in a Christian environment that has surrounded you, but maybe has never really penetrated your hard heart? Are you content with your second-hand religious experiences and have never really been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Have you experienced a loss in your life, like maybe a family member or a close friend, and you feel like because of that loss, it's keeping you from living the way God has spelled out for you to live in his word? 
well, I would serve him, but this happened. Have you ever had good intentions for ministry, but then you ran into some sort of conflict or adversity or difficulty, and you've given up and you've thrown in the towel? Have you ever come out of the gate raring to spiritually go somewhere only to grow tired and weary? Like me trying to pray for 30 minutes in the middle of the night the other day, right? Like my prayers were great at first. I'm like, oh man, I'm tired. (laughs) Or maybe your Bible reading plan or maybe your continued education study to further your knowledge of scriptures or whatever it might be to be a disciple who makes disciples. Have you ever held an opinion on a gray matter of ministry that caused you to pull away from your brothers and sisters in Christ in a local body of believers? And we just kind of, the way John Mark skips across the landscape of the New Testament, do you just skip across church to church because of a difference of opinion? Have you ever been tempted to separate or actually separate over a non-essential ministry issue? Listen, the enemy would love nothing more than to leave fellow gospel-centered disciples divided. We can't be divided. We can't be disunited over ministry matters that are non-essential. Do you hear that? We can't be deunited and disunified and divided over ministry matters that are non-essential. Some things we need to hold on to and some things we just need to let go of. Not essential. Not essential. Have you ever served the Lord for a season and then since then slowly faded away? Better yet, having been gone from active service, are you ready to jump back in? Think about this, please. Older demographic in the room and online, listen carefully to this. Have you in the latter part of your life bloomed and become more seasoned and now, maybe more than ever, useful for ministry in the kingdom. This isn't just like John Mark as a young man. I'm talking about seasoned veteran followers of Christ that now you've bloomed, man, and you have so much to contribute to the younger generations, but it's like, but my, but, 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 but I've had this loss or this pain or this ache and it's hard. okay but you are more useful than ever to get plugged into the life of a disciple to mature them. Please, older people, do not just fade off into the sunset. Use this season of life and steward it well as the mysteries of God are being held to you and you get to expound on those to others. Man, it's not too late for any of us. So have you ever in the latter part of your life bloomed and become more seasoned and are now maybe more than ever Useful for ministry in the kingdom. It's not too late. Not too late. Get plugged in. Get plugged in. And so, that's the portrait. We should all be able to see ourselves somewhere in Mark's portrait. Can you see yourself? Where do you see yourself? The truth is is that we're all going to mess up, and that's for certain, but there's grace for every trial and grace extended to us that can get us back on our feet and make us useful for the kingdom again. Failure, failure for a time does not mean disqualification forever. There was a maturing process that Mark went through, and it made him more useful than ever to the Apostle Paul.
more useful. And so I'm sure that I've missed many lessons that could have been learned and maybe should have been learned if I spent more time thinking and praying about this fellow, John Mark. But even for that, there's grace, and that grace is what I needed extended to me to keep me going, even to start this new series. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And for that, we can say, amen. Let's stand as we conclude with one song and a final benediction.